This episode is brought to you by Near Country Provisions. I've been a customer for about a year now, and I can say without hesitation that the delivery of frozen farm fresh meat that I receive from Adam and his team makes me do a little happy dance every month. Not only does Near Country offer grass-fed beef and pasture-raised pork, but they also have an awesome selection of chicken and seafood. And the best part is it's all local and it's all sustainably farmed and harvested. You can customize every order or simply leave the selection in their capable hands like I do. Near Country even offers fun add-ons like bones for soups and stocks, as well as special holiday offerings like turkeys, brisket, and more. If you live in the Mid-Atlantic, that's D.C., Maryland, or Virginia, and you're sick of the same bland selection at the grocery store, or you're looking to drastically improve the quality of the protein in your diet, Near Country Provisions has you covered. Head over to nearcountry.com and enter the code BARCART, all one word, when you sign up for your subscription to receive two free pounds of bacon or ground beef in your first delivery. That's BARCART, B-A-R-C-A-R-T, all one word, at checkout. This is easily one of the biggest quality of life improvements I've made in the last year or two, so I hope you'll give Near Country Provisions a shot and let me know what you think. Now, back to the show. Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern bar cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome to episode 224 of the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Koslick. Thanks for joining me for this audio essay, where I pick one very specific topic from the vibrant landscape of spirits and cocktails and examine it under the microscope. And in this case, I really do mean under the microscope so that you can become familiar with the history, art, and craft that most people aren't even aware of. The goal of these audio essays is not only to make you a better, more well-rounded drinker and bartender, but also to examine where our chosen topic links up with other nodes in the vast beverage network and try to understand what these relationships mean at the end of the day. Our subject of interest this time around is the Mighty Margarita Cocktail, which stands out as perhaps the most beloved and ubiquitous sour cocktail in the world. Without breaking a sweat, most of us know it to be comprised of tequila, lime juice, and a sweetener, most commonly an orange liqueur like Triple Sec, Curacao, or Grand Marnier. You can probably also conjure up an image of its service method, the iconic stemmed glass and the salted rim. But beyond that, what can you tell me off the top of your head about the margarita? Can you produce a recipe with precise measurements? Can you tell me about the bar where it was popularized or the bartender who invented it? or when any of that happened, historically speaking? If you can't answer any or all of those questions with rapidity or certainty, don't worry, you're not alone. And the reason why you're not alone is because they're not super easy to answer. The margarita cocktail represents a branch of the sour cocktail family tree that constantly forks and elaborates outward from its origins. But maybe forking is the wrong way to describe what the margarita does. The Negroni, 
forks into a boulevardier, which then forks into an old pal and a man about town. A martini forks into a Vesper and a Gibson, but a margarita radiates, spitting out little twigs and offshoots specific to time, place, style, and culture, all with different recipes, but all bearing the same name. I've always been fascinated with cocktails that seem to resist one or a few canonical recipes. Cocktails so good and so easy that the point isn't to worry about them or argue about them, but rather to simply enjoy them. Here's the catch with these kinds of cocktails though. You can sip on a mediocre one and not give it a second thought, not be disappointed. But when you encounter a truly amazing one, it's a thing of sheer beauty. So the goal of this investigation is to determine how the margarita came to be, including what specific flavor triggers it sets off in our brains and what historical beverages paved the way for the modern margarita. That will be the project of this episode. In part two, we'll try to unpack the various origin stories of this cocktail, and then we'll analyze several renowned variations, notably the Tommy's Margarita and the Cadillac Margarita, to see what those recipes can tell us about where the invisible borders of the drink reside. In the end, my hope is to determine the true heart of the margarita, to understand what makes it different from all the other sours in the cocktail pantheon. The internet is littered with recipes, good and bad, history, real and speculative, and plenty of brand-sponsored misinformation. And because of that, because I couldn't find a resource that stripped down the margarita to its essential components and then reassembled it for me to consider, I decided to tackle that project myself. I'm glad you'll be with me on this journey because it begins many, many years ago when the world was a very different place. So come along with me and, you know, maybe, maybe pack a snack because to understand why the margarita is such a delicious drink, we need to go back in time roughly 500 million years. The story of the margarita, like any good story, begins with a worm. And we're not talking about the worm in the mezcal bottle here, but a one millimeter long roundworm known as C. elegans. In the days before mammals, before dinosaurs and reptiles, and before even the simplest fish swam in primordial seas, C. elegans split off from flatworms and other basic eukaryotes and started wiggling around in the mud. That's what worms do, after all. Things haven't changed that much in 500 million years. But C. elegans isn't just any wiggly little worm. It's something known today as a model organism, which is different from when your third grade teacher called you a model student, because I have a feeling your third grade teacher wasn't studying your reproductive life cycle or actively mapping your genome. That's what we do with model organisms. We look at how they reproduce, evolve, and respond to stimuli in order to understand big questions about the human body that are too complicated or unethical to test on humans. For more than 50 years now, scientists have been using C. elegans in various studies and experiments, and in 2002, it was the first multicellular organism to have its entire genome sequenced and mapped out for the world to see. 
One of the consequences of this work is that we can look at a gene that is present in the human genome and then step into our genetic version of the Wayback Machine to see if that gene or gene family is also present in this very early, very rudimentary organism. Well, it turns out that one gene family that you and I have in common with C. elegans is called OTOP1, which is responsible for our ability to perceive sour flavors. According to researchers, OTOP1 is, quote, uniquely suited to mediate sour taste transduction and is not structurally related to any other known ion channel or transporter, end quote. This is all a very complicated way of saying that, to the best of our knowledge, there were little worms crawling around in the mud about 500 million years ago, and their ability to perceive what amounted to sour tastes in their environment is directly tied to our ability to taste them in our cocktails today. Maybe not exactly what you want to hear as you take your first sip of a margarita, but I think it points toward a very deep and very essential relationship between living organisms and sour tastes. From here, the question arises, why did organisms at any point in our evolutionary history need to know about the presence of something sour? Well, if you can extract yourself from thinking about sour as merely a taste for just a minute, it might be a little simpler to think of an acid as just a compound with some extra hydrogen ions. Let's put on our chemistry hats here for just a moment, and I do apologize in advance because I haven't worn this hat since junior year of high school, and it was never one of my favorite hats. Anyway, here we go. A hydrogen atom is simply comprised of a proton and an electron. Proton, positive charge. Electron, negative charge. And if that electron decides it's got better things to do, better atoms to go be with, then a hydrogen ion is formed. This is the simplest of all the ions because it's just a proton, a single positively charged subatomic particle. When we measure the acidity of a solution, we use a measure called pH, which refers to potential hydrogen or the power of hydrogen. Either way you translate it, whenever we measure pH, the end goal is just to figure out how many hydrogen ions are hanging around in a given solution at a given time. That translates to its acidity. So if I'm a little worm hanging out in the mud 500 million years ago, or even a fish swimming around in the prehistoric oceans sometime later, and I sense a distinct increase in the acidity of my environment, I've got two choices, even if I don't have a brain. I've got two choices to make. I can either ignore that stimulus or I can respond to it. If that acidic environment turns out to be bad for me and I stay, then chances are I die. But if I move, then I maintain my homeostatic balance long enough to reproduce and create copies of myself that will hopefully do the very same thing when they sense a potentially harmful shift in the pH of their environments down the road. That's how evolution works. And that's how certain physical traits and capabilities, like the ability to perceive acids, are passed down over eons. But at the end of the day, you and I are not worms. We are not fish. We are primates. Instead of sensing the presence of acidity in an aqueous environment using receptors on the outside of our body, we need to actively ingest a substance to determine whether or not it is acidic. Now, anyone who's ever juiced a lemon or a lime when you've got a cut on your hand knows that's not strictly true, but for the purposes of sour cocktails, let's assume that that's the governing truth. 
Here's Professor Dan McCall from the Gettysburg Odor and Flavor Lab explaining how our taste receptors identify a given taste, in particular, something sour. And if you can believe it, this is from way back in episode seven. That's almost five years ago. Take a listen. Taste starts on the tongue. The tongue is bumpy. Those bumps are called papillae on the tongue. Um, and those are not the taste buds. We usually re often refer to them as taste buds, but they're not the taste buds. The taste buds are on those bumps, and you have um, upwards of 50 or 150 per bump. And the taste buds are the things that do the reception. So when you, for instance, ingest something, a, a taste molecule of sugar, for instance, um, the taste buds have taste cells on them. Those cells have little receptors, and I think of you think of them as a lock and key type system. So the receptor is sort of a lock. The sugar molecule is the key that fits that lock. And when the sugar, sugar molecule floats by in some saliva and lands on a taste receptor, you have the experience of, of sweet. And the taste of sweetness works that way. Bitter works that way. Um, umami works that way. Sour and, and salt work a little bit differently. There aren't locks and keys for that. Those molecules go straight into the cells and cause activity. But it's similar in the sense that you have the molecule floats by and you get a, a signal. And that signal gets sent back to the brain. Notice that Professor McCall isolates the way we perceive acid and salt from the way we perceive sweet, bitter, and umami flavors. This is because these two tastes operate using ion channels rather than the slightly more specialized lock and key receptors for other tastes. To me, this connection between acid and salt seems important, especially when we're talking about a sour cocktail often served with a salted rim. But perhaps more important than our mere ability to perceive acidic tastes is the reason why we tend to crave or prefer them which is almost certainly a phenomenon that occurred much closer to modern humans in the evolutionary tree of life. So in our next phase of this journey, we get to time jump more than 400 million years closer to the present day. One possible explanation for our preference for sour flavors is that about 60 to 70 million years ago, the common ancestor of monkeys and primates lost the ability to produce endogenous vitamin C due to a genetic mutation. Vitamin C, of course, remains a very important nutrient for humans, and it does play a very, very direct role in the development of sour cocktails via citrus. But before we were mixing up grogs and punches supposedly to fight scurvy and gin and tonics to fight malaria, our fuzzy forebears were stuck sourcing their vitamin C primarily by foraging for fruits and berries. This brings us to a fascinating little moment in the history of human evolution the moment that primates descended from the trees and descended to stay on the ground. This decision, if you can call it that, is what prompted us to begin walking upright and to form social groups capable of warding off terrestrial predators. It also happens to be the historical moment where our need for vitamin C experienced a collision with our affinity for alcohol. Here's past guest Mark Forsyth, author of A Short History of Drunkenness, explaining the drunken monkey hypothesis. I should point out before we get going that all of the higher apes and most intelligent mammals and even some very stupid mammals like a drink. They will drink alcohol whenever they can get hold of it. It's just they can't make it. But alcohol does occur naturally. If you just leave fruit to rot, it starts producing alcohol. And it's, uh, alcohol is a very good source of energy. And 
uh, human beings are uniquely good at processing it. We are the second best animal in the entire world for um, taking our booze after the Malaysian tree shrew. So never ever get into a drinking contest with Malaysian tree shrew. But after that, we <laughs> have a quite specific mutation in our genes, uh, which uh, goes back about 10 million years, which allows us to process alcohol way better than most animals and to get more energy out of it. About 10% of all the enzymes in your liver are there just to get energy out of alcohol. And this led people to say, why do we have that? Interestingly, 10 million years ago is just about the time we came down from the trees. And so the theory runs something along the lines of we came down from the trees to get this ripe, rotting fruit, which has fallen onto the forest floor. That's why we come down from the trees, which has this alcohol in it, which it's great for our energy. We actually develop a nose. We, we, we're like great white, you know, great white sharks can smell blood, you know, miles and miles away. We are like that with alcohol. Humans have this incredible ability to smell alcohol, which other animals don't have. So we wandered around looking for our rotting fruit. When we found it, we ate a bit, but it was it was a big find to find a, 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 a proper alcoholic rotting fruit. And so we then needed another little mutation in our genes, which we have, which dates from the same time, which is to make us eat a lot. And I don't know if you've had that thing of going on a night out, having quite a bit to drink and then desperately needing a burger or in Britain, it's usually a kebab or a pizza or some, some food. That's because right. drink, drinking alcohol actually uh, triggers it's the famine response in your brain. It makes you hungry. It's the same as if you're actually being starved. You go, when you say I'm starving when you're drunk, you actually sort of are. And so you therefore eat loads and loads. This, um, you can now store it as fat. You can survive for days on this. This is great. But, and this is the final part of the drunken monkey hypothesis, you get drunk. And this is a little bit dangerous. If you're just lying around on the forest floor on your own, drunk, and along comes a saber-toothed tiger or Tyrannosaurus rex, which would be achronological, but there we are, then you need to be able to protect yourself from that predator. And that, the final part of the drunken monkey hypothesis, is that that's why humans drink socially. We drink together, and we've always, according to drunken monkey hypothesis, drunk together so that we can fight off predators, so that we can protect each other when we are helplessly drunk. It's also speculated that sour tastes are a kind of safety signal in rotting or fermented foods, one that says, hey, this is probably okay to eat. This is relevant because as our primate ancestors foraged for the nutrients they needed, they were bound to encounter lots of ripe fruits rotting on the ground, at which point they were faced with the decision to eat or not to eat. Notably, going back to the drunken monkey hypothesis, these fruits that were rotting were also the ones most likely to contain alcohol. That's why this is all relevant. Here's distiller Brian Davis, who does an excellent job breaking down the complex battle between bacteria and yeasts that occurs on fermenting or rotting substances. Bacteria and their strategy for world domination have mastered the art of having babies really, really fast. That's basically their battle plan, right? There's two of us that started this tour. Uh, by now, there'd be eight of us. There'd be 16 by the time you got to the lab, 32 by the time you got in the carousel, 64 by the time you get to Whiskey Island, 128 by the time you get to the aviary, uh, and 256 of you trying, or us trying to get back in a car. Right? Yeah. You'd never <laughs> fit. And, and so basically what they're doing by breeding that fast is encircling their competitors, eating all the food around them, and then starving them to death, uh, which is essentially their battle plan. Now, of course, the catch to that is that you could starve yourselves to death just as easily. So to prevent that from happening, bacteria produce chemicals called short-chain fatty acids that they use to talk to each other. 
Those chemicals allow them to communicate. Once they build up a high enough concentration of them, they shut down their reproductive cycles and then just eat the food. Okay, now those chemicals are what humans evolved to smell and not like, or like depending on which bacteria you're smelling. So you smell a piece of cheese, your brain picks out the lactic acid, gives you a feedback report from a database you were born with, and goes, yes, this is acceptable, grate this and put it on a taco. Right. Uh, right. Or you smell a bowl of kimchi and your brain goes, ah, this is good too. Yeah. That's a propiani bacterium and also lactobacillus. Great. Go ahead and buy a food truck and put this on a taco. Yes. Uh, but yeah. So, uh, and then you smell something rotten and horrible like a compost pit and your brain's like, no, <laughs> put this nowhere near your food. That's clostridium. They'll kill you. And so that's basically humans in a nutshell. Uh, and then from there you get to yeast, which their strategy for world domination is to out-evolve their competitors. And so they're constantly evolving solutions to everything that gets thrown at them because they're actually the world's fastest evolving organism, uh, which is something that most people don't realize because we take them for granted because they make things like beer and wine and are such a part of our daily lives, bread. Right, right. right. But in reality, they're actually quite special. Uh, and we use them in laboratories to study the evolutionary forces on an organism because they respond so much faster than everything else does. Got it, got it. And this isn't just like your standard bread yeast that's in a little sure. packet at the yeah. supermarket. Yeah, it is. Oh, really? Yeah. Your standard bread yeast in the little supermarket packet is the world's fastest evolving organism. Really? And, and it makes sense. It became the bread yeast to make bread for you to get you to grow more of it. Right. It's devious. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. No, they're, they're sneaky little guys. Um, but so over the course of millions of years of being the world's fastest evolver, they've evolved a lot of really, really cool superpowers. One of those is that they can speak bacterial languages. And so when you put yeast and bacteria in close proximity, the first thing the yeast do is make a whole bunch of those short-chain fatty acids to inform the bacteria that the bacteria have already won the war. It's time for them to stop breeding, and then the yeast can quietly encircle them and starve them to death without the bacteria ever realizing they lost. Now, while they do that, they build up even more of those chemicals in the soup, which would make humans very unhappy, right? Because you'd get a bottle of wine that would taste like compost at the end. Right. And so to keep you happy, they make an enzyme which then converts the short-chain fatty acids to short-chain fatty acid esters by chemically binding an alcohol molecule with a weak acid to form the corresponding short-chain fatty acid ester, in nature, short-chain fatty acid esters are the things that make fruit taste like fruit. It's so that when you, basically the way I like to summarize it on the tour is every time you watch someone swirl a glass of wine and sniff the wine in the glass and talk about the black currants and raspberries on the opening, uh, you know, followed by a citrus backbone with a hint of red currants sure. in the finish, what they're actually describing are the chemicals made by the yeast to spoof the human into thinking they're smelling fruit while covering up the conversation they had with the bacteria when they spoofed the bacteria into committing suicide. So to summarize what might seem like a rather drawn out tangent about the evolutionary roots of our preference for acidic tastes, I simply want you to bear in mind a few key facts as we forge ahead into the world of sour cocktails. And these might not seem incredibly relevant as we round out this episode, but I promise you, as we zoom out at the end of the next one to examine what really makes the margarita cocktail tick, we're going to be returning to these facts. Here they are. First, our ability to perceive acids is incredibly ancient. And the gene family that encodes this ability was also present in worms that evolved over 500 million years ago. Second, our perception of acids has always been linked to our ability to survive, from sensing overly acidic environmental conditions in the ancient seas to searching out vitamin C 
that we lost the ability to produce on our own. And finally, acidity is very often a stand-in for the goodness or non-toxicity of a substance we may wish to consume, like the citric acid you see on the nutrition labels of almost everything at your local supermarket, it's a preservative. And since refrigeration and advanced food preservation methods are dazzlingly new in the history of humanity, our species has historically been very reliant upon acid as a signal for potability. These are what we might call the preconditions for the rise of the sour cocktail. Like a tinder dry forest, they lay dormant as we leapt from worm to fish to reptile to mammal. The atmosphere began to crackle with electricity as we lost our ability to produce vitamin C, and heavy storm clouds loomed when we evolved not just a tolerance, but an affinity for the combination of sour tastes and alcohol. The real question then is when did lightning finally strike and cause us to start pairing citrus and alcohol intentionally and in a controlled, regimented way? I would argue that this moment came amidst an era when humans decided to strike out into an aquatic environment that we were no longer suited to survive in, when we converted forests to plank lumber and filled canvas with wind beyond the sight of any friendly shoreline. This was the age of exploration, which paved the way for merciless colonialism and global trade. Now, I know most of you are probably waiting for me to dive into a story about grog and how it was invented as a way to keep sailors from suffering from scurvy on the high seas. This is the prevailing historical myth that gets repeated ad nauseum. But if you look at the history books, it turns out that grog was actually invented in the Caribbean, where sailors would not have to spend long periods of time without fresh food and where vitamin-rich fruit was readily available. So it wasn't so much necessity that instigated this felicitous amalgamation of spirits, water, sugar, and citrus, but rather a combination of bad behavior and bored palates. The problem with the British rum ration in the 1700s, which consisted of about four ounces of high-proof spirits, is that it was ordered to be cut four to one with water. So that's 16 ounces of water to four ounces of booze, which puts it roughly between 12% and 15% ABV. And we're not talking about a nice fizzy rum highball here. We're talking about, in all likelihood, stanky ship water. This diluting of the rum ration was conducted so that sailors wouldn't save up their rum for several days and then go on a bender, which would inevitably result in behavioral and safety issues. So what do you do with a drunken sailor? You dilute his rum, but then you have a disappointed sailor who has nothing better to do in his spare time than dream up ways to make his rum ration taste better. This is where sugar and citrus entered the equation, and eventually the concoction became a viral hit in the naval community and beyond. The same process occurred on the other side of the world at around the same time, but using slightly different ingredients, which is what sparked the punch craze. And the rest, it seems, is sour cocktail history. Following punch and grog, the rest of the historical run-up to the margarita elapses over a much more compressed time period than what we've dealt with so far in this episode. It only takes about 150 years to move from grog and punch up through other proto-cocktails like slings and toddies until we finally see people combining tequila, lime, and orange liqueur in a measured and 
regular standardized fashion. To my mind, there are two very important cocktail formats that we have to thank for ushering in the age of the margarita, and those are the Crusta and the Daisy. I should note, as I love to do, that the best resource for a detailed history of these and all the other cocktails between punch and prohibition is Dave Wondrich's book, Imbibe. It's got all the historical context, all the color commentary, and all the little twists and variations you could hope to explore. But for our purposes, we need to begin by looking at the Crusta. This cocktail hit the scene in 1850s in New Orleans, invented by an Italian bartender named Joseph Santini, and was initially a brandy-based cocktail, although it was quickly adapted to other spirits. What makes the Crusta such a compelling forebear to the margarita is that it's a lightly sour cocktail that contains orange liqueur in the form of curacao. The original recipe for it, listed in imbibe, is as follows. One teaspoon, or about one quarter ounce, gum syrup. Two dashes bitters. Two ounces of spirits. One half teaspoon, or about one eighth of an ounce of orange curacao. And one teaspoon, or about a quarter ounce of lemon juice. This is a shake and strain kind of drink. The Crusta isn't what you'd think of as a classic sour cocktail. Although it contains citrus, it definitely skews sweet. This sweetness is even further amplified by the service method from which it derives its name, the sugared rim. When a bartender made a true brandy crusta, he would peel the rind from half a lemon, then run the juicy flesh of that lemon around the rim of a stemmed cocktail glass, which he then dipped into a dish of fine sugar to coat the rim. Then that rind from half a lemon would be placed in the glass, kind of forming a little cone circling the inside of the glass, and the beverage would be poured in. So what the brandy crust lacked in balance, it made up for in flair. And hey, guess what? There's nobody sitting here with a gun to your head saying you can't mess with the acid-to-sugar ratio in this drink if you'd like one that suits your palate a little better than the original. Our other margarita predecessor of note, the Daisy, was invented about 20 years after the rise of the Crusta in one of America's other great cocktail cities, New York. According to Wondrich, this cocktail had a couple timing and identity issues, in that it was essentially a whiskey sour served with a splash of seltzer water. Just barely enough justification to call it a completely different cocktail, until some bartenders started playing around with orange curacao as the sweetener. The timing issue lies in the fact that fizzes, which were sparkling long drinks, started to really take off in popularity pretty much right after the daisy was invented. Because, hey, if you want seltzer in your drink, have some damn seltzer. But while the daisy was down, it wasn't completely out. In fact, it stuck around just long enough to be served over ice and even remixed with some intriguing new ingredients, including raspberry syrup and grenadine in the 1890s. This is also when folks started to get really excited about London-style gin, which replaced aged spirits like whiskey and Dutch gin in the daisy format, leaving us with what Wondrich refers to as the new type of daisy. A spirit, some acid, and a fruity sweetener served over ice and topped with soda water. To conclude this section on our immediate margarita precursors, I'm going to read a paragraph straight from Imbibe because, hey, it's not one of my signature audio essays if I don't steal directly from Dave Wondrich. He writes, quote, 
It's worth going into this much detail about the daisy because of something that happened in Mexico while the Great Experiment, read Prohibition, was running its course in El Norte. First off, in 1929 or thereabouts, the new American-financed gambling and golf resort at Agua Caliente outside of Tijuana introduced its house cocktail, the Sunrise Tequila. Tequila, lime juice, grenadine, a little creme de cassis, ice, soda. In other words, a tequila daisy. And in 1936, this even pops up north of the border in Syracuse, New York of all places. Unfortunately, nobody bothered to record which kind of daisy they were drinking. The old school one, which was often served in cocktail glasses with only a minimal amount of fizz, or the new school one, like Agua Caliente's Sunrise. This is important because of the Spanish word for daisy. If they were drinking them old school, you see, they were drinking tequila, orange liqueur, lime juice, much more common than lemon in Mexico, and maybe a little splash of soda and ordering them as margaritas." End quote. This, my friends, is where I'll have to leave you until we pick up the trail of the legendary margarita cocktail next time in the conclusion of this two-part investigation. We've covered a lot of ground, from the humble origins of acid perception in a one-millimeter roundworm 500 million years ago to the crusted rim of the crusta and the eerily familiar formulation of the tequila daisy. But we've still got a lot of ground to cover, so please come back next week, tune in as we explore some of the hotly debated origins of the margarita cocktail, when we look at a couple really important variations on this drink, and try to finally draw all of these various threads together to uncover what is the essential heart of the world's most popular sour cocktail. I'm Eric Koslick. Thanks for listening. And I will catch you next time right here on the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. Cheers. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is, the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here, and by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Bar Cart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners, and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning, so remember, folks, 
drink responsibly, and experiment boldly. This episode is made possible with editing and sound design by Samantha Reed and a little bit of researching 500 million year ago time travel and magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2022.